Uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit about Jesus and about healing, um, but when we, whenever we do that, people automatically start thinking of these TV preachers and this TV healing ministry. But when we look at the Gospels and we look at the healing stuff that Jesus does do, we want to ask the question, well, what's the point of the healing? What is it that Jesus is doing? Why is he healing? Um, for TV preachers and these TV healers, guys like Benny Hinn, that's the guy I just showed you, um, the point seems to be to get the preacher fame, to get the preacher rich, right? So that uh, he can, um, you know, save up money and, uh, you know, become rich or whatever it is, right? It's all about the preacher. But when we see these miracles um, in the Gospels, and we see, especially with Jesus performing these miracles, we see other ones in Acts and other parts of the Bible. Uh, but when we see these miracles with Jesus, what we're really seeing is the king is here, and he's giving his people um, glimpses of what the kingdom of God will look like. So today we're going to read about some of this stuff. We're going to take a look at some of these miracles, and what we're going to see is that nobody's hitting anybody with a jacket. So we're going to start here in verse 31, uh, chapter 4, verse 31. And if you want to follow along in the version stuff, all that stuff's on the website there, if you have the Bible app, the version Bible app. All right, verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So Capernaum, I'll put a picture right here somewhere, I think. I don't know. Uh, anyway, Capernaum was a small fishing village. It was on the northern uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Luke... Uh, in writing this, he actually points out, he says it was a, a Capernaum, a city of Galilee, because most of his readers, you know, Theophilus, especially the primary reader of this work, was not from this area. And so he wouldn't have known the geography very well. So he's kind of clarifying, you know, it's like if somebody from the South, like if Mackenzie's describing to me Georgia, I don't know anything about Georgia, right? So if she's describing Georgia, she has to tell me, oh, I live in this town. It's this far from Atlanta, because, you know, I'm not from there. That's kind of what he's doing. So he says, it's the city uh, of Galilee. Galilee. Um, Capernaum was sort of Jesus's adopted hometown. At the beginning, this was where he began his ministry, it was sort of his home base. Um, the city's name means the city of Nahum, but nobody knows if it's named after that prophet from the Old Testament. Um, this is also the city where Simon, Peter, James, and John were all from. They were fishermen, all from here. Um, we also are going to read about Matthew, the tax collector. He worked here. Um, it was one of the larger cities in Galilee. Now, remember, Galilee was kind of like the redneck in our uh, country, rednecks are from sort of the south, but, you know, in Israel, the rednecks were from the north. So this is sort of the northern redneck part. Um, but this is one of the larger cities at the time. Uh, in this area. It had about 1,500 people, um, but it wasn't a very wealthy town. Archaeology, they've dug up this town from Jesus's time. Um, there weren't really any public buildings, um, and the homes were not really that nice. The only really nice building, and really the only public building, was the town's synagogue. And they've actually dug this up, and I'll see if I can find a picture of it. If I do, I'll put it right here um, when I'm editing this. Um, so this is where Jesus is, and he's teaching on the Sabbath. Now, if you remember some of the synagogue procedures from when Jesus was teaching in the Sabbath on um, in his hometown. Chronologically, this actually happened probably before the story that we read about uh, the last couple of weeks where we were reading about Jesus in Nazareth. Um, but you remember, it's a lot like our church services. There were some readings and some explanations of the text and that sort of stuff. Um, so we already learned about some of this in Nazareth. So Jesus is going around now and he's doing this um, in his adopted hometown in the city of Capernaum. 
And the text continues in verse 32. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So the word astonished there, what it literally means is struck by a blow, or like punched and knocked over. They were astonished at his, at his teaching. Why? Because he had authority. So the way that most teachers would come into a town like... Um, Capernaum. You know, I told you before that a lot of traveling preachers would get to go around and they would uh, teach in these synagogues. And so they probably had a lot of guest preachers and these traveling scribes and rabbis and that sort of stuff. They would all sit down and they would start teaching and they would quote other authoritative sources. So it's a lot like how we would see a lawyer uh, in the Supreme Court in our time. No lawyer would stand in front of the Supreme Court and say, I actually have no idea. I don't know anything about lawyers, but I'm pretty sure from what I know, because I watch a lot. Look, guys, I watch a lot, a lot, of, a lot of law and order. Uh, from what I can tell, when a lawyer stands up, they say, they quote other cases, right? Well, in the case of Mitchell versus Johnson or whatever, I have no idea if that's a case. I just made that up right now. But you know what I mean. Um, they're quoting these other sources. This is what the rabbis would do. They would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, you know, uh, Rabbi so-and-so taught this to his people. Um, but not Jesus. That's not how Jesus taught. His teaching had inerrant authority, right? They would say, well, so-and-so says, and then Jesus would show up and say, look, I'm telling you this. Nobody would do that in front of the Supreme Court. Nobody would get up and say, well, I just think this is a really good idea, so we should probably do it. You have to have case law, right? And that's what everybody did until Jesus showed up. The people had never really heard the word of God taught like this. And when they did, they loved it. They were astonished. They were struck by a blow at his teaching. They loved it. Why? Um, Hebrews kind of explains what's going on here. It says this, for the word of God, this is Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Guys, the Word of God is powerful. That's why I've devoted my entire life to teaching it. God uses His Word, right? He uses the very words of God like surgery for the soul. He uses it to get into the soul, to cut in there, and then to cut out the tumors, and to rid us of sin, and to make us more and more like Him. And I've talked about this before, but this is why we do the teaching here the way we do it. We're going to go through books of the Bible verse by verse. We're going to talk about the, the easy stuff. We're going to talk about the hard stuff. And as much as we can, we're going to make the times of the sermons about God's Word, and less and less about my words. I could get up here and tell you all of the things that I think about healing and what you know whatever topic. Here's my three ideas about you know, what I think about whatever, but that's really not what we're doing here. What we're doing here is I'm trying to do my best to communicate the truth of God's word as simply and as plainly as I can so that, you know, he'll use that with his Holy Spirit to get in there and among God's people, right? Our church is filled with God's people. He's going to do surgery on our souls. That's what we're really after here. So that's kind of a side note. Um, that's sort of a sidebar. But here in Capernaum, Jesus was doing, but doing this, but he didn't necessarily have to say, oh, here's the scripture, although he was teaching from scripture. His words are the word of God because he is God. And so the word of God now in this synagogue as Jesus is teaching is doing its thing. People are really, really into this sermon and into his teaching. And it's at that very moment, and I've seen this to be true, that when good things happen in church, the enemy wants to get in there and stop what's going on. And so that's what happens here in verse 33. So he's teaching, everybody's loving it, verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, 
So let's talk about demons for a sec, because now we're on this part with demons. So we, I want to take a sidebar and just talk about this. Really, you guys believe in demons, like the exorcist with the, the head spinning and the vomit and the... I've actually never seen that movie, but you know what I mean. Um, that's kind of how people think about demons. Or what was the other one? Um, oh, man, there was another one that was really popular a few years ago. I saw that one. I don't remember what it was called. There were like four or five of them. You know, the girl gets dragged out of the room by the demon upstairs. Anyway, it's like kind of shot like a reality show. Anyway, that's what people think of when they think of demons. You guys really believe in that sort of stuff? Okay, well, we've already talked about this a little bit when we uh, were talking about uh, the temptation of Jesus, and we talked about the devil. And if you haven't heard that sermon, um, it's just from a few chapters ago. Just go back and find it on the website there. I would encourage you to listen to it. But basically... What we believe is, yes, there really is an evil one out there. Not uh, not all problems in our world are just caused by a lack of education and we just need counseling and, you know, although, you know, none of that stuff is bad, right? In our world, we believe there is real, actual evil. And behind that evil is the one who sits and rules the world system of what the Bible uh, calls, uh, metaphorically calls Babylon, right? There is this evil system of oppression and injustice and all this stuff, and real, actual evil. And it's this cycle that keeps showing up over and over again. So the way that Romans were oppressive, the way that, um, you know, the Greek civilizations were oppressive, the way, I mean, in a lot of ways, England uh, during the empire was oppressive, uh, the way the Nazis were oppressive. Whenever you see this sort of oppression and evil and putting people down, we call that system Babylon. And behind that system, what we learn in the book of Revelation, and what what we really do believe is that there is an enemy of God. Um, And I'll say this too. It's not as though God and Satan are equal, right? Good and evil are battling it out. That's not what's happening, right? God is ultimate and Satan is a created being. Um, But he does cause evil in this world. And we call that evil sin. Now, Tim Keller, in one of his sermons, was talking about this. He's a pastor in uh, Manhattan. And I really liked this. Uh, he was talking about um, this woman named Hannah Arden. And she went to see the trial of a Nazi criminal uh, who had hid, uh, he had escaped justice um, after World War II and hid out until the 1960s. And so in the 60s, she went and she found him and, or she uh, didn't find him. She went to his trial to watch and she was expecting to see this monster, this guy who had committed all of these atrocities. And she was so shocked at how the trial just was about this regular guy, right? This man who committed so much evil, but he didn't seem like a monster. And after this trial and after her experience, she wrote an essay called A Report on the Banality of Evil. And Tim Keller, I want to read to you what he says when he's writing about this. Um, He says this, Now, the sum is always great explaining what's going on. The sum is always greater than the parts. If you're old enough to know a very evil social system like racial segregation in the south of the United States, uh, if you are old enough to have been there um, and know that kind of uh, devastation, it caused so many people. Yet, if you actually talked to the individuals who were in the system, who supported this system, none of them seemed like such bad people. Why? The magnification. There's chaos in your heart, and there's chaos in the world, and there's spiritual darkness inside, and there's supernatural darkness around. And the supernatural darkness and personal supernatural evil of the demonic magnifies the evil inside us and makes the world a much worse place than it would have been otherwise. 
He says, do you understand the depth and the complexity of evil then? The Bible does. I hope you have the worldview of the Bible. Now, I agree with Keller. The biblical worldview has the best explanation uh, for the depth of evil, that we all have this evil within us, but the devil behind that magnifies that evil in the world. And that explanation involves a real enemy opposed to the work of Jesus. So, where he brings grace, the enemy brings condemnation. Where Jesus brings truth, the the enemy brings uh, lies and falsehood. Where Jesus brings peace, the enemy brings chaos. And, uh, that's where, that's the chaos is kind of what he's trying to do here. So that's sort of our, our very long sidebar there. Uh, this man now in the synagogue, he had the spirit of an unclean demon. So as we read about this stuff, I'll say one more thing. As we talk about demons and the devil and all this stuff, um, there's this famous C.S. Lewis quote. He wrote one of my favorite books of all time. It's called The Screwtape Letters. And what The Screwtape Letters is, it's a book about um, an older demon mentoring a younger demon on how to mess with God's people. And uh, the beginning of that book, C.S. Lewis, I mean, I'm not going to give you the whole quote, but basically he says this, look, when you're talking about church people, there's two mistakes that they make uh, when they're talking about the devil and uh, demons and the supernatural. Either they make everything about that or they make nothing about that, right? So there's so many people who, oh, my, the starter on my car wouldn't work and I missed an appointment. That's the devil. He's out to get me, right? And then there's other people that when the devil really is out to get them, they pretend like there is no devil. And so we don't, we, we don't want to have any either of those errors. We want to kind of take a biblical view of the supernatural. And so what are demons? Well, we talked about the devil being the one in rebellion against God. Demons are also angels, fallen angels. They're soldiers of the devil. So now let's talk then about demon possession, right? The exorcist throwing up and head spinning, right? Um, It's clear from a bunch of passages in the New Testament that the New Testament writers were not ignorant fools uh, that just saw mental illness uh, and called every mental illness possession of the devil or demons or whatever, you know. Um, even in our text, we'll see a little bit later on that Luke will separate these two these two things, right? There's the sick and then there's the demon, uh, you know, the people bothered by demons. So what is demon possession exactly? Well, here's the thing. The idea of demon possession is biblical, but the phrase is not. Um, that's more like the exorcist. And it's unfortunate because I don't really like that terminology because the Bible doesn't use it. The Greek in the Bible usually says something like the person had a demon. And I think one of the problems that's developed um, in especially evangelical theology is a much more detailed theology and explanation about the demonic than what the Bible actually explains. We can admit we know some about the devil, we know some about demons, but we don't know everything. We can't fill in all the gaps. So what do we know? What is, you know, demon possession? When we're talking about what is it? Well, the idea is this, that a demon exerts influence over a person to different amounts depending on the situation. So In some cases, they're really bad. Some are just a little bad. Some are, you know, but all of them are evil. Um, uh, Like, for instance, Satan, it says, entered Judas to exert influence to help him uh, betray Jesus. Uh, But Judas was still hanging out with everybody and, you know, it... Nobody knew, oh, that guy is clearly possessed by the devil. But in other cases, like the man with the legion of demons that we'll read about, um, he had little or no control over himself. Uh, the boy at the after the transfiguration, same kind of thing. So here, while Jesus is teaching, this guy shows up. Uh, he It says he has a demon. And what does the demon say through him? So it cries out with a loud voice. Um, at the end of 33, and then verse 34, it says, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So, 
the ancients believed that knowing somebody's name gave you power over that person. And I bet Theophilus probably had grown up with that belief ingrained in his heart. And so as he's reading this, you see the demon cries out from this man, um, uh, you know, uh, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And I bet he thought, uh-oh, the demon has the advantage. They know Jesus's name. They know who he is. But here's the thing. That's true. They know who he is. Uh, but the demons, they don't worship Jesus. He's not their king. He's not their Lord. That's what we find out in James 2.19. You know, uh, James talks about that. Great. You believe all the right stuff. Even the demons believe it, but they have not surrendered their lives to Jesus. But at the same time, so they know who Jesus is, right? He's the Holy One of God. They're afraid of him. Have you come to destroy us? That's what they say. These demons know who Jesus is, and that's why they're terrified of him. Um, you know, we have the boys in our house now, and um, I was uh, arm wrestling with one of the boys. You know, we're just kind of horsing around. And I was arm wrestling with one of the boys last week. And uh, I let him get my arm, you know, almost all the way down. And right as he was about to win, he got this big grin on his face, and then I slammed his arm down, you know, and I won because I'm uh, such a nice guy. Anyway, um... Uh, <laughs> you know, let's be real. I destroyed this kid. Uh, there was never any doubt during that arm wrestling match that I knew I was going to mollywop this kid. He he never had a chance to win. He might have thought he did, but he didn't. Um, it's the same with the, with God and the enemy. The end is certain for God. There's no chance that, that the devil is going to be able to get God's hand all the way down. Um, uh, Revelation talks all about the fall of Babylon, the fall of Satan, and how he and his buddies will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. That end is certain, and that's why these demons are so afraid of Jesus. Um, you see, despite what TV and South Park and uh, Family Guy probably, you know, what all these TV shows will tell you, Satan does not run hell. He's not there, uh, you know, poking people and bothering people. Uh, Satan is going to hell. He is going to go there and he is going to face the wrath of God for all of eternity. And if you believe that there are different, um, uh, you know, uh, kind of, uh, what do they call it? You know, punishment will be worse for some people than others. Then Satan is the one who's going to get the wrath of God the worst. Um, so he's not running hell. He's heading there. And so knowing that this is their future and knowing that this is the Jesus who is going to send them literally send them to hell. This demon, when he sees Jesus, he loses it. Who are you? What are you doing to me? Are you here basically to send me there now? And so, of course, Jesus is not having any of this guy talking in the middle of his sermon. So, uh, it's very rude to interrupt a preacher. Just saying. Actually, have I ever even had that happen? Yeah, once or twice. It's not that bad. Um, anyway, verse 35. So, Jesus now talks to this guy, uh, talks to this demon. He says, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out uh, out of him, having dealt, uh, done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. So, unlike the other exorcists in his day, Jesus didn't need a bunch of fancy incantations and all these rituals to work. With authority, he just tells the demon to shut up and leave this guy alone. And that's exactly what happens. The demon had obviously a lot of control over this guy. And so the demon wiggles around um, and then he leaves. He takes off. And then the guy is totally okay. And so there's this this vast supernatural world that whenever somebody from from uh you know our side our world comes 
comes into contact with it, they're always blown away. Like when they people see angels and, you know, the angels always have to say, be not afraid or whatever. Or I do know some people um, who have legitimate stories that I believe where they have seen people who had a demon just like this guy. And they've described it to me as one of the most terrifying things that they've ever seen. There's this vast and scary supernatural world of power and evil. And Jesus has control and power over this world, no problem right? that That's his power. That's his level of authority. And everybody around him instantly recognized it. Um, that's what it says here. Uh, For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. They can't believe how easy it was for Jesus to show his power over the demonic. And so, of course, um, people see something like this and they go around and they tell other people. Verse 37, and the reports about him went out into every place of the surrounding region. So, Jesus is now becoming more and more uh, popular. And as he's traveling around to these synagogues, he's teaching with authority and everyone is learning more and more about God. He's casting out demons. He's freeing people from the power of the enemy. Um, But there's more also. He's casting out demons. He's um, teaching, but he's also uh, healing people too. And that's what we're going to see in this next part. So verse 38, uh, and he arose and he left the synagogue and he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. So Melissa and I have this tradition where, uh, you know, well, not anymore since we're not allowed to go to church. Uh, But, you know, for years and years, we'd go to church. And because we went to church in the mission district where I was a pastor for so long, uh, it became our tradition to after church, we'd walk and go get burritos. And so now with our church down here, we also have done the same tradition. uh, And we'll do it again if we ever get to... uh, you know, go back to church, but um, we would go and we get burritos. So here they had a similar tradition, right? The Sunday meal. Um, they would go to the synagogue service on Saturday morning and uh, they would have a large meal then around noon. And uh, today the meal, it looks like after the synagogue service was hosted by Simon Peter. So Luke introduces Peter here, Simon Peter, uh, as if everybody just knows who he is. He doesn't explain who he is. Um, and you, do you know what they ate at this meal? I'm guessing it was probably fish because Peter was a fisherman. So they had fish sticks and bread probably. Um, but they get to the house and Peter's mother-in-law is sick. So what that tells us is kind of interesting is Peter had a family. He had a wife. He had a kid. He had kids. Um, you know, the Catholic folks call him the first pope. Uh, but I think that's interesting, right? The first pope was married. Uh, anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. But um, remember, the idea, as we as we read this stuff, we want to put ourselves into this text and see what's really going on here and not um, bring our Western ideas into this. And so, remember, they didn't... Uh, they didn't do family the way we do it. They had larger extended families, like almost like clans. And so she was definitely, uh, most definitely, or I'd say probably, uh, lived with him uh, because that was very common. It's somewhat common in our day. It was almost always how it worked back in the day. And so um, part of the, you know, the matriarch of this clan or whatever, uh, she had a fever. Now, remember, they didn't have all the great medicine, vaccines, and the stuff that we have now. There was a good chance that this this fever was a death sentence. And the way that Luke describes it here, every word is a medical word. So um, it's like when a doctor says you have gastric distress in the lower digestive tract, and then I'm like, um, you mean stomach ache, right? That's kind of how Luke is writing here. He's using all these medical words, basically just a big fancy way to say, dude, she is super sick, and this fever is really bad news. Verse 39, 
Um, so let's see what Jesus does. He stood over her and he rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose uh, and began to serve them. So he rebukes the fever now, just the same way he rebukes the demon. Um, this is the only instance where Jesus rebukes a disease like this. Um, and a lot of people have spilled a lot of ink trying to decide, well, was this caused by a demon or not? Well, because he rebukes it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, he rebukes the fever. The gospel has Jesus, the gospel's. Um, have Jesus rebuking four different things. Demons, the wind and the waves when he calms the sea, the disciples, and here, uh, in this one instance, this disease. It shows he has power over all of those things. Um, and, you know, he has, those words are used to show he has authority over something. So, he has authority over this fever, he rebukes it, and then she gets up and she's better. Right away. Immediately. Right away. It shows Jesus' power. This isn't some sort of like, okay, here, take this medicine and maybe you'll get better. Um, have you ever had a really bad fever or the flu? Do you remember um, how I had to cancel the Super Bowl party because I was like, oh man, and I think Terrence filled in for me at the, the church down the street and I was supposed to preach at a few places and I had a fever and the flu and I was up all night yakking and oh man, that was terrible. Well, anyway, even after that, when the sickness was gone, it took me days and days and days to even feel somewhat better. Um, that's how it works. Not with Peter's mother-in-law. Right, and there's no sort of lingering effects to this. She gets right up and she starts making everybody, uh, you know, Sunday afternoon, well, Saturday afternoon burritos. Um, and so they're all hanging out and they're eating their burritos. And then the the afternoon turns into the evening when the Sabbath is over. So verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those uh, who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. So the Sabbath ends. Remember that we do our days from morning to morning. But um, in this culture, they they counted days from night to night. And so the their day begins at night. Uh, so Sabbath went from Friday night to Saturday at sunset. And so there were rules. And we'll talk about the rules for the Sabbath later on. I'm not going to get into that now. But there, there were these extra rules that a lot of the folks had added about how many steps you could even take on a Sabbath day. So everybody in town knew that... Um, Jesus was healing folks, but they had to wait until the Sabbath because he was like 10 steps too far away from their house and they didn't want to get in trouble. And so as soon as the sun sets, it's like Walmart at midnight on Black Friday. Like it's this land, the Oklahoma land rush to try to get to Simon Peter's house because everybody knows that Jesus is there and that he's healing people. And so they show up and look what he does. He lays hands on all of them, right? Jesus was powerful enough to snap his fingers, heal everybody, and then go take a nap. Let me tell you, that's what I would have done. Usually when I get home from church and then I eat a big fat burrito meal, all I want to do is take a nap, but not Jesus, right? He spends time with each person. He lays hands on them. He heals them. He frees them from this disease, from their diseases. Um, verse 41 and it continues, and the and demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So people, like I said, in the ancient world, they didn't just confuse disease and mental illness with healing. Here Luke clearly separates the two. And he says, Look, and there were these other people who weren't sick, they were actually uh, you know, being bothered by these demons. Um, I think I did. I just say demonic possession. I told you before, I don't really like that term, but I don't really know what else to call it. Uh, anyway, uh, look at the demonic description, though, of Jesus here. You're the son of God. Just they're basically saying the exact same thing that the, the father said at the baptism, right? Everybody look at this kid. Look at this guy. He's my son. I'm so proud of him. They're saying the same thing, except this time Jesus tells them to shut their fried chicken holes and to get out of here, right? Why? 
Theologians call this the messianic secret, where Jesus was constantly telling, especially demons, hey guys, you know, you're not going to get to tell everybody who I really am. Why does Jesus do this? It happens over and over and over again, especially in the book of Mark, I think it is. Uh, Why does Jesus constantly shut up these demons and not let them talk? Well, let me explain it with an illustration. So our church is in District 3 of San Francisco. So the way San Francisco works is we have a board of supervisors, and each of those supervisors... Um, represents a district. So District 3 is like kind of downtown. It's Chinatown, uh, Knob Hill, Russian Hill, Telegraph Hill, and North Beach, right? And and I think down to the marina area. Like uh, that's our neighborhood. And uh, this... the, there's an election coming up on when we vote for president this year. We're also going to be voting for district supervisor. And the election this year, there's a couple of people running, but kind of the two main ones are Danny Sauter. I think that's how you say his name. Um, he's the guy who runs the North Beach Neighborhood Association. Um, and Aaron Peskin, the incumbent. Now, I'm not really supposed to get political here on, uh, you know, as, as a church and tell people who to vote for. So I'll just factually say that Aaron Peskin does not run the North Beach Neighborhood Association. Okay, so now imagine that you're Danny uh, and you're running against the incumbent and you wake up to see the news, right? You open up your Google News feed or maybe you have a, um, you know, a Google, what's that called? Where they can, you know, it searches for any news about you specifically. Um, you know, he has an alert set or whatever. And he wakes up and he rolls over and he reads the front page of the Chronicle. Donald Trump endorses Danny Sauter for the San Francisco City Council. Now, if you were him, what would your first thought be? Well, that, guys, that really doesn't help me. Um, I'm running for city council in San Francisco, a very liberal and progressive city. Um, so to have the head of the Republican Party endorse you is only going to hurt. It's going to hurt and create more headaches than it's going to help. Now, don't read too much into this illustration and email me about how I said Republicans are demonic. I could have gone the other way and told a story about somebody in Texas uh, running for whatever, and then Pelosi gives them the endorsement, right? You get the point. You don't want somebody from the other side endorsing you. Jesus doesn't need demons going around telling everybody his business. The fact is, he is the Messiah, um, and he is the, you know, he's the Christ, and he's the king, and he's here to bring the kingdom of God, but he's going to tell people that on his own timeline. And coming from them is not really helpful. And so, when a demon is being cast out and cries out that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus tells them to shut their pie holes, uh, you know, assuming demons eat pie, which I'm assuming they do. He says, guys, cut it out, and then they do. Um, because he doesn't want that sort of the bad PR. Okay, so that's Jesus's long day, right? Teaching in the morning at the synagogue, um, going home, uh, back to Simon's house, healing Simon's mother-in-law, uh, eating a super burrito with uh, carne asada, I'm guessing, because, you know, I mean, he is Jesus. He doesn't know how to eat a burrito. Uh, casting out demons, uh, you know, and then at night, casting out demons, all that sort of stuff, healing people all night. And now, verse 42 Um, You can imagine he was pretty tired. And when it was day, he departed and he went to a desolate place. So after this long and taxing day, Jesus needed time to recoup. He was a real human being like we've talked about over and over again. He was exhausted. Uh, But also he needed time alone with his father. And as a side note, this is so important for us to really see. If he needed time with his father, how much more do you? 
right? Remember why we're reading Luke. We want to see how Luke portrays the life of Jesus. And how does he do it? Over and over again, we see that Jesus has this very disciplined spiritual life. Now, you might be thinking, man, I really don't have a disciplined spiritual life. I just kind of pray whenever I want to and whatever. You know, I don't read my Bible as much as I should. There's a book I'd really recommend that you go take and read. It's called Ordering Your Private World by somebody, McDonald, I think. Um, I'm blanking on his first name. By some uh, McDonald. Um, And it's, you know, it's not a perfect book, but it's a pretty great book for people in just that situation where he really lays out how to kind of get your spiritual life in order. I love it. Anyway, so Jesus is the ultimate uh, example of what that book is talking about. All right, verse Uh, The rest of 42 and then 43. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent uh, for this purpose. Oh, and then verse 44. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. All right. So the crowds mob him again. They want to... they want to keep him in town. So, he, you know, I mean, it'd be nice to have a town where anytime you need to get healed, you could just go over to Simon Peter's house, right? That's what they want. But Jesus wasn't sent to be the local town healer for the, the small fishing village of Capernaum. His mission was so much greater. He was here to preach the kingdom of God. And we've been talking about uh, the kingdom of God, right? The upside down kingdom. This is Jesus's first mention of the kingdom of God in Luke, um, where he'll expand on this a ton with some parables. The kingdom is like this and like that. Um, This is his first mention, and he's come to announce this kingdom to everybody. The kingdom of God is here, folks. Um, This has probably happened very early in his ministry, um, before even that Nazareth stuff. Mark uh, says this about Jesus' message, right? This is the first thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark um, in 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. That was the message of Jesus. He was going around in these towns, and he was casting out demons, and he was healing. But even more important than that, he was preaching about the kingdom of God. And so, that's the point of these miracles, Right? It's to show people what the kingdom of God looks like. It's the way the world is supposed to be. So whenever we see a miracle like this, we get a glimpse of eternity. Miracles are not parlor tricks to be used to help TV preachers raise money so that they can buy a jet with a few more seats, right? That's not the point of miracles. The point of miracles is to get glimpses of eternity, glimpses of, of the kingdom. They're these undeserved Um, reminders of the way the world is supposed to be and that we live in a world that's not supposed to be like this, right? People are not supposed to be tormented by the enemy and his buddies. People are not supposed to be sick and dying in pain. The kingdom of God, where the king rules, the king uh, is is where the king rules. It's uh, uh, the king who isn't going to let things stay this way. And Jesus's ministry was all about the kingdom, right? Preaching and demonstrating what the kingdom of God looks like. And so he, he's doing that and he's teaching it from scripture. All, um, you know, he's showing people through healing. He's, he's kind of giving people these, this glimpse. He's letting people peek into eternity and see this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And now remember though, He doesn't want these demons to be the ones to announce the kingdom of God. That was his job. That was his work. But notice this. uh, He doesn't want the demons to do that. He doesn't want the demons to announce the kingdom of God. But that's now that he has ascended into heaven, that's exactly what he wants you to do. 
right? Let's jump forward in the story, right? Spoilers. Jesus dies and he rises from the dead. That's the end of the book of Luke. But just before and then after that, he hangs out with his disciples for a little longer than a month and then he takes off into heaven. But just before he takes off into heaven, here's right towards the end of the book of Luke. Um, here's Luke, uh, what are we in? 24. Um, it's... Uh, starting in verse, what is this, 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that the repentance of forgiveness of sins uh, of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, um, Jesus is not while he was on earth, his mission was to, to heal people and to cast out demons and to proclaim the, the kingdom of God. Um, his mission evolves to, you know, I mean, at the end of the book, his mission is to die and rise again. But here, during the beginning of his ministry, this is what he was doing. Um, and uh, But he's not here doing that anymore. And so what he does now is, you know, he's not here to walk around and tell everybody the things that he did while he was on earth, but his spirit is still here. And the Holy Spirit dwells within his people, just like what these demons, right? This person had a, a, this unclean spirit. Well, God's people also have a spirit, but a clean spirit, a perfect spirit, a holy spirit. And that spirit, right, the spirit of Jesus leads his people guides his people to what end? To, to do what Jesus did while he was on earth, to proclaim the kingdom of God. This is our ultimate calling, to point people to the king, to give people glimpses of the way that things are supposed to be. You see, Jesus is still doing this work. It's just that now he's doing it through you. I want you to really think about how amazing that is, that the same kind of stuff that Jesus was doing here to show people the kingdom of God, now he does it through you. So let me just make a few points about this as we end. The first point is this. You don't deserve to be God's ambassador. It's all grace, right? You don't deserve to avoid God's wrath. You don't deserve to have glimpses of the kingdom. You don't deserve to be adopted as a son or daughter of God. You deserve to spend eternity with the enemy in the lake of fire. But now that you can avoid this fate, now that you've been adopted into the family of God, um, that should really change your outlook. It's, it's amazing. Uh, you know, that's why we have the song, right? Amazing grace. Don't be a forgetful moron that thinks that you deserve this. Always, and I mean always, be blown away by God's grace. That should be the most important thing in your entire life, to be constantly blown away by the grace of God. The moment that you forget this, you're not much good as an ambassador of Christ. It's not the amazing people that have a kingdom impact. It's the regular people who wake up every day and think to themselves, man, I cannot believe that this is true. Right? We call that the fear of the Lord. And those are the people, the fear of the Lord, who are humbled by the fear of the Lord. Those are the people that God uses. Right? And because when you have that, people will see that in you. That attitude will point people to the king. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. You don't have what it takes to stand up to the enemy, but the spirit inside of you does. Um, this is 1 John 4, 4 um, from the NIV. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you uh, is greater than the one who is in the world. Now, that's kind of a famous verse. Let me illustrate it this way. Like, I remember 
hearing about this that you know some divers or went in one of those submarines and they went way deep down where the pressure on the submarine is just like crazy amounts of pressure and they get down there and uh, they look out the window and this little fish swims by and they you know it's kind of interesting right how can this 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 metal submarine almost is being crushed by the the pressure here and if any of us went outside the submarine the pressure of the water would just squish us but this fish is fine well because the fish has an internal pressure that's just slightly greater than the pressure of the water outside. So if you were to pull that fish up to the top, it would just explode. That would be hilarious. No, I'm just kidding. Don't call me. Don't call PETA on me. Uh, I don't need that kind of grief. Well, basically, that's what Jesus says that the children of God are like, right? Is the, the spirit that's within us is greater than the spirit that's within the world. It doesn't always feel like that, but that's true, right? And so how do we stand up to the devil? Well, we don't, but the spirit within us does. Here's the third thing. You need God's word to be an ambassador, right? One of the things here that's so interesting about Jesus is how he taught the word of God with authority because it was his very word. To proclaim the word of God, you need to know the word of God. And and I don't mean just know like, oh, I know who Samson's mother was and I like all these random facts, but you need to know the story in your soul, right? How does that happen? Uh, well, the Spirit of God does it. Look at John fourteen twenty six. The But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, uh, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Or Ephesians 1, uh, verse 16. Do not cease to give, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes, this is it, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you what are the riches of his glorious uh, inheritance of the saints that's what we're after right the holy spirit teaching us that's why i always pray not always but i mean you guys probably are sick of hearing me say that but i say it so much at the beginning of the sermon lord let this time be about you and your words and not so much about me and mine Right, because his word is what's so important. And so, as you're thinking about this, don't just read your Bible, right? Read your Bible prayerfully and ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand the gospel story. And then here's the fourth point. I know you're only supposed to do three point sermons, but whatever. Here's the fourth point Uh, Our love now is what we will use to show people glimpses of the kingdom of God. Now, miracles do still happen. I believe that. And uh, casting out demons still happens. We're going to talk about the theology of those two things later on in the book of Luke. I'm not going to get into what do we believe about miracles. And I'll uh, I'll tell you what we believe. Benny Hinn is full of it. I'll tell you that much right now. Uh, But we'll get into the the gifts of the spirit and the healing and all that stuff later on. But... um, I'll just, so I'll just leave that off to the side. But miracles do still happen. But that's not the only way that we have to give people glimpses. I mean, even in the book of Acts, if you spread out the book of Acts, how many years went by, how many people were involved, and then how many miracles there actually are, even during the book of Acts, miracles were not super common. It's not like every church was constantly having people uh, healed in front of them or whatever. Um, the Bible basically says, like, for healing, we should pray for people you know, because sometimes when we do, they get healed, right? Not every time, but sometimes. So we should always pray for people to be healed, right? But we're not a bunch of miracle workers. This is not what we do, right? But what can we do then? Well, John says, John says in his epistle that God is love. And at his core, our king 
is love. That's what he is. And so his kingdom then is about love. And so one of the things that we're going to experience when we reach the new heaven, the new heavens and earth um, is we are going to experience love, the love of God in a way that we've never experienced it here on earth. We're going to experience perfect, unbroken, loving relationships with each other. We're going to be so happy because not only are we going to be loved, but we're going to be loving. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. If the ultimate principle in the kingdom of God is the most important thing is to love people. And so because his kingdom is about love, that is the best way that we have to give people glimpses of the kingdom. As the spirit is working within his people, we should be, you know, just crazy loving to everybody around us. And then this is how I'll end is with just a pitch for this is why we're reading the art of neighboring. I don't want you to learn how to feel guilty that you don't know your neighbors. That's not what we're doing here. That's not what we're after. Um, I don't want you to just, you know, oh, fine, John says I have to have somebody over for dinner or whatever. You know, I mean, it's COVID now, but you know what I mean, right? Like, I don't know, this is not what we're doing. Why are we reading this book? Because we want to show our neighbors the kingdom of God. We want people to see what the world looks like, where the enemy doesn't reign, right? We want people to see the real king, uh, you know, the real king, Jesus Christ. And so, because we want to do that, we're going to read this book of The Art of Neighboring, and we're going to talk about how is it that we can love our neighbors for real. Um, so what we're doing, though, is we're not reading every week like we did with Generous Justice. So um, I don't even know what date this is going to be posted. With these kids here, I have no sort of reference for time anymore except bedtime. That's what I look forward to. But anyway, uh, September 9th, uh, so I think it's a few weeks from now, we're going to begin the book um, and we're going to read the first two. We're going to talk about the first two chapters of The Art of Neighboring. Then we're going to take two weeks to do in two weeks from September 9th. We're going to do um, the next two chapters, I think. I'll let you know the schedule. But just to start out, get The Art of Neighboring uh, and get ready by September 9th. We're going to read those first two chapters. If you don't have time to read or you don't get to it, join us for the chat anyway. We'd love to have you there um, because ultimately what we want is to be a church that loves our neighbors and that loves our coworkers and our family and our friends and the people around us uh, because we want to do what Jesus wants us to do. We want to be wonderful ambassadors for his kingdom so that, like I always say, we can get to uh, heaven and, uh, you know, be in the new heaven and earth and in that perfectly loving world and look around and see a ton of people there with giant's hats on. Amen. All right, let's pray. So Lord, we thank you that we do have glimpses of your kingdom. We thank you that you are the perfect and righteous king. We thank you that you are the powerful king with authority over the supernatural and authority over sin and death. We thank you that you're gracious and merciful and that you have brought us into your family. You've brought us in to be ambassadors. And so uh, we just ask, Lord, for the, the filling of your Holy Spirit so that we can do that well, so that we can love our neighbors well, so that we can... Um, give people around us glimpses of what your kingdom will ultimately look like. And so um, we just thank you for who you are and how much you love us. We don't deserve any of this. Um, you're such a gracious God. Amen.